We're continuing on in our Sunday morning teaching series. We've called it the Uncommon Community. And it's a study in this short little bit book called First John. And in this book, what we've found is that John is calling the church, people like you and me, people who pick up this book and read it, to be a kind of people that look distinct, that look different, that look set apart, that look uncommon in a very broken, messed up world in need of Jesus. So that seems to be the kind of thing John is pushing us towards, to be that uncommon community. Now, as we've been studying it, what we've found is that at various occasions and at many turns, John has reiterated himself, hasn't he? John's kind of repeated similar things. He's, he said, uh, love one another twice already. And now he comes up again and says, right, let's talk about this for a third occasion. Yes, use the same words, the same phrases, the same concept. And he's going to say to us this morning, love one another for the third time, for the third occasion in this letter. Now, we have to ask the question, well, why is he going to say it three times? Why does he want to bring this up again? Isn't, isn't twice enough? Isn't just repeating it once enough for people like you and me? Why does John want to say this again? Well, I think he knows that that kind of statement, love one another, is incredibly difficult when you live in a diverse church community with very, very different people. He knows that people like you and me, and particularly his readers, are going to need a push, are going to need some encouragement, are going to need impetus or motivation to continue in this, because really loving one another is incredibly difficult. Now, when I was a kid, my mum used to take me and my brother on these walks throughout the countryside, particularly in the summer holidays. So the summer holidays is quite a long stretch to be at home as a kid. So we would normally be playing football, we would climb trees, we would build dens, watch TV. When the PlayStation came out, it would be FIFA. But, but every now and again, we'd get so restless and so pent up with energy, but mum would just be like, all right then, lads, we're going to go for a walk. Now, to her, it was just a stroll in the countryside, and to many of you, it probably is. But to us as kids, this was a military-style route march. She would take us around entire villages and wood- woodlands and footpaths. So, so we would usually start, me and my brother, this walk with, with quite a level of enthusiasm. This is great. We'd probably have a wrestle halfway around, or we'd get some sticks and have a sword fight. But when we realized we were the furthest point from home, all of a sudden, it got very difficult for us. Our shoulders would begin to droop, our legs would feel like they're made of lead, and and then we start to whine and whinge at mum. Oh, but mum, why did you take us out this far? Can you just slow down, mum? We're tired. We don't want to go on these long walks around these stupid footpaths. Why are we doing this? Mum, this walk is hard. I don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. And we just whine and whinge at her the whole way around. And as we were going, mum would kind of provide incentives and motivation for us to get us home. And she'd say stuff like, well, you know, dad's going to be home in an hour. And you can play Lego and football with him when he gets home. So come on, let's get home. Or look, we're almost there. Just keep going. Not long to go. Oh, oh, you know what we're going to have for dessert tonight. You don't want to miss that and sleep out here, do you? You better hurry up and come home. 
And so then that would be the motivation, the impetus, the drive, the push, the encouragement to get us round the journey, to keep going, to keep walking that path. But there's us saying, it's hard. This is difficult. Good old mum, keep going. Here's some encouragement. Let me push you. Here's some motivation. Now, very often we can be faced with this, this imperative from John. Love one another. Be the kind of people who love each other. Be that kind of a community. And, and we read that and we hear that and we think, yes, but it's hard. It's really hard. Now, now we're in a very, very diverse church community. So you know what that means. That means that there are people with different loves, different joys, different burdens, different sorrows, different hobbies, different experiences, and different personalities. So we know the beauty of diversity, but we also know the hardships of diversity. That it means we come up against people who are different than us. People whom we sometimes think to ourselves, wow, they're really obnoxious. Well, they're irritating, they're, they're hard to deal with, they're unloving, they're unkind, they're, they're brash, they're thoughtless, they're opinionated, they hurt me, they, they seem immature. I, we come across people in the diverse community whom we are different from, that's for sure. Now, when John says, love, love one another, he doesn't just mean, uh, love some of those people you get along with. No, he means comprehensively love everyone. And we can all hold our hands up and say, we know what it's like when we hear that statement, love one another, and we're faced with the people who are hard to love. We're faced with the kind of person that we just kind of feel like this sometimes. But it's not at that moment, all of a sudden, John's command, love one another, suddenly doesn't apply. Of course it does. So what John seems to do in this passage right here is to say, look, 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 here is some motivation. Here's some impetus. When the church kind of hands, holds their hands up, when individuals say, look, this is hard. I don't want to keep walking this path of loving one another. It, it hurts. It, it, it takes sacrifice, and I'm tired. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Here is some motivation. That's what John is going to do for us this morning. So why don't we open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be kicking off in verse 7, and we're reading quite a large chunk all the way down to verse 21. So you can get that open in the black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews. That's going to be page 1,229. Grab those. You get it open on your phone if you brought your Bibles with you. Let's have this open so we can read through this together. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And it reads like this. Beloved, love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. But this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That means atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love, of, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love a God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, now if you've been around for the lion's share of the series Uncommon Community, in reading that, you might notice there are quite a lot of repeated words, phrases, and concepts. So we know we've already read love one another. We know John has already pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. And we know John has already said stuff like a love being perfected and not living out a lie by saying we're one thing and doing something different. So similar concepts that run through this, but he's repeating himself. And in this, what he is doing is saying, here is some motivation. Here are some pointers for you to love one another. Let me show you. Let me push you. Let me encourage you. Let me pull you round this path of loving one another. So what are these points of motivation that he gives us? That's our big question. Where do we find that motivation to love one another? Well, John's going to give us four very specific things in this passage. I know there's more we could look at. I want to look at four specific areas of motivation that John gives us to carry out that command to love one another. So let's go back to the first couple of verses we just read. To verse 7 and verse 8. Really groundbreaking stuff right here. Beloved. We're speaking affectionately and pastorally. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because, crazy statement right there, God is love. Now, really interesting, John has just created or shown us this vital, important, significant connection. He's made these really, really crazy statements. Love is from God, and even more crazy, God is love, okay, and we're born of God, therefore we love one another. So what John seems to do is to connect our very Christian nature to God, who is a God of love, and that's the reason and the foundation for which we love one another, because God is love. Now, we need to ask the question, okay, well, how on earth can John say love is from God and God is love? How can he even approach that? He doesn't doesn't say love is from God and finishes there. He says God is love. Now, as a church at BRBC, we stand in line with the historic Christian tradition. Over the last 2,000 years, we have proclaimed that God, our God, is one. We have one God. 
So we're a monotheistic faith. So mono, one, theistic God. A one God faith. So we said there's one God. But also within the Christian confession, we profess that God is Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we say God is one, and God is in three persons. Now we don't actually read the word Trinity in the Bible. You can't find that anywhere. Though you see the Trinity at play and at work, just woven throughout all of the scriptures. Even in the passage I've just read, we've read about the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity is there. We read of one God in three persons. Now, in the early church, they they read their Bibles, they saw what they were reading, they could see that there's one God, and this God is three persons. And there were some people who were well-intentioned who thought, let's try and smash this mystery into some kind of logical formula. And every time they tried to do that, they ended up moving away from what the Bible said. So some of them would say, uh, well, yeah, God is one, and they would emphasize the oneness of God, and they kind of dismantle the threeness. And then some people would talk about the threeness of God, and they're not really hold up the oneness of God properly. So, so a lot of the early church got together and said, right, we need a statement of faith that properly articulates where we stand on the Trinity and what the Bible says. So in the 6th century, got together and the Athanasian Creed was accepted. Now, you know a little bit about creeds because I think you did the Nicene Creed last week. Well, in the Athanasian Creed, it focuses on kind of articulating what the church believes, what the Bible says about God being one God and in three persons. So I'm just going to throw up a snippet from the Athanasian Creed. I want to read through this. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Here we go. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory, co- their glory equal and their majesty co-eternal. Now, as we move through the Bible and we read, uh, we read our theology about the Trinity, what we'll find is that God really is one God in three persons. And in the Trinity, what we will find is that there is this perfect, delighted, unified community that God exists in. God exists, has done forever, will do forever as this per- perfect tri-person relationship. Now get this, if God was not Trinity, if there was one person, there was no, tri, there was no tri-person God, there would be no space for love. If there's no relationship, there's no object to love, God wouldn't be love. God could create love, God could long for love, God could create something to love and be loved back, but God could never in and of himself be love. But because God is Trinity, love is possible. So let's look at this. It's uh, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. So let's look at this next slide that Kevin DeYoung, uh, a famous pastor and theologian in the States, writes about this. Without a plurality of persons in the Godhead, we would be forced to think that God created humans so that he might show love and know love, thereby making love a created thing and God a needy deity. But with a biblical understanding of Trinity, of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that he 
had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who ever live in perfect mutual relationship and delight. So you see what he's saying there. Because God is Trinity, we can say, and John can say, that God really is love. In and of himself is this self-giving. In and of himself is this delight in the other. In and of himself, he is other persons centered. That's who God is. So John can say, God, uh, love is from God, but yes, he can say, God is love. That's why he can say that. But what's the logic in those first couple of verses? It's love one another. Why should we love? Why, why, why? Because we are born of God. And God is love. So what John does is he roots the love we have for each other, the way we treat each other, the way we lay ourselves down, give to one another, bear one another's burdens, seek the interests of others in this room. John roots that in the nature of God. We belong to him. Our nature has been changed. Our identity We participate in God's love himself. We receive it. We live through it. We live in it. We don't always feel like it, but that's the truth. God is love. We belong to him. We're born of him. We know it. So we love one another. So here's the first point of motivation that John gives us. Know you belong to a God of love. First point of motivation. When we're saying it's hard to love one another, well, John roots our natures, our very natures, participating in God's love. It is who we are. That's our nature. We are chips off the old block. Now, we've had the last three weeks with my in-laws in Washington State in America. And we we had a really great time. We caught up with the 5,000 family members. We did everything we normally do on a holiday. We spend time at the river. We go fishing. We go to our favorite restaurants. We just spend time around the bonfire together. A really, really good time. And one of the evenings, we went and picked blackberries because it's that time of year. Now, Washington blackberries are enormous. They're like tennis ball. No, not really that big. But they're, they're really, really giant and really, really sweet blackberries. So we go out with our containers and our bags and we fill it up as much as we can. Now, all throughout the trip, I'd been saying to my in-laws and that side of the family, uh, my son Jude, he's blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And there's no blonde hair and blue eyes in my family. But in the Miller side of the family, there's all blonde hair and blue eyes. And I always say to them, look, dude, he's, he's Miller through and through. There's no Martin about him. And they're just like, well, he does exhibit some of your characteristics, James. He is like you. And I'm like, no, I think he's a Miller. Well, there's me and Jude. We're standing there picking blackberries. And I, I like to get nice and close to the blackberry bush because I'm looking in. And I want to find the most juiciest blackberry I can find. I don't just want any old blackberry, not just a small, uh, weak. I want the big one, even if it's in the middle of the bush. So, so I'll see, and I'll navigate my way through, and then I'll see one. And it might be a distance away, so I have to work to get it. So I negotiate and navigate my way through all of the thorns until I get my paws on this juicy blackberry. And then I kind of bring it all the way back, and then it has to go through quality control. Because I, I don't want a blackberry that's been eaten by an insect in part. I want a perfect blackberry. So I kind of look at it side to side, top and bottom, and... If it's not good enough and it doesn't pass quality control, it's over the shoulder. And I go in again to find another one. And I find another one, I look side to side, top and bottom. And then if it's satisfactory, in it goes. Great. And I turn to my side and I look at Jude. And I see Jude face to face with the blackberry bush. I see him peering into the bush. I see him looking. His eyes light up. Then he goes through the thorns, navigates his way through, finds a juicy blackberry, brings it all the way back, works his way back without getting spiked by a thorn, 
And then quality control, he looks at it side to side, sees that a bug is eating it. Over his shoulder, it goes back in again. And he eats it, and then he comes out with another one, quality control. That's satisfactory. Down it goes. So, wow, okay, blonde hair and blue eyes. Yeah, that's Jude. But he really is a chip off the old block. I'm sorry, Jude, there is no hope for you. You are more like me than I realized. See, John seems to be saying to us right here, that's our nature. Our nature is that we have been included into the Almighty's overflowing kind of love. That's who we are. That's our nature. We don't always feel like it, but the truth of the matter is, we have been included into, we receive and we live out that kind of love. So our first point of motivation is to know that we belong, we are of, we are born of a God of love, a God who is love. But John keeps going. He wants to give us more motivation. Look at verse 9. We're going to read quite a chunk here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this... We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. There he is again. And whoever abides in Love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, it seems quite a complex little discourse right there, but it's actually quite simple. John seems to be saying, yeah, love is from God. God is love. You're wondering what that looks like. You're wondering, okay, God loves you, but you want to know how. You want that confirmation, or you need that example. You need that love illustrated. Let me show you. God the Father sent the Son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his Son to be, what's the word? The propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice that is laid down to absorb the wrath of God against the punishment for our sins so that we might go free. John is saying, that is love. That is what you need to look to. If you're wondering what love looks like, look at Jesus Christ putting on human flesh, walking among us. The one, the one, the only one who had no sin became sin on our behalf and died on the cross, laid himself down, put the interests, his own interests on the back burner and put our interests before his own. Self-sacrifice, other person-centered. You're wondering what love looks like. I'll show you. It's right here in the person of Jesus. And then John seems to be saying right here, yeah, you see, God is invisible, but when we love one another, when we do that, we demonstrate God to the world around us. And then John says, we've been given the Spirit. So therefore, we confess that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that's the kind of love, he says, abide in. That's the kind of love, remain in. That's the kind of love, stay in. That's the kind of love, practice, do whatever you can to live that kind of love of Jesus out in your everyday lives. So the second point of motivation John gives us right here is this, to see love defined, to see 
love defines. So he's showing us the greatest illustration, the greatest act, the greatest exhibition of this self-sacrificing love. See, Jesus, ah, now you've got an idea of what you need to be doing to other people in this room, laying yourself down. So he shows us an illustration. He gives us an example. He shows us how we are saved to provoke loving one another. When I, when I was at school, I really wasn't that engaged most of the way through. If you looked at most of my report cards, it would be, he's doing all right, but he could do a lot better. I don't know if you guys ever had that, but it seemed to be all over the place with me. I didn't really connect with anything. But I remember the first time I ever properly connected with a subject at school, and it was history. It was quite a surprise to me, because I don't care about history. My, my granddad would always be talking about it, and therefore it was boring. I didn't want anything to do with it. But I had one teacher, his name was Mr. Adams, and I was about 11 years, 11 years old, and I, I came to his classroom. He, he was quite a stern, severe, kind of curmudgeonly kind of teacher. But I saw through that, because I could see that this guy loved history. Loved, loved, he was crazy about it. And also, he loved the students that he was teaching. And, and we knew that he loved us, even though he was a bit mean at times. We knew that he wanted us to know about history. And so for the first time ever, a subject became, became real to me. I saw this, this passion in this teacher's eyes that he kind of embodied the relevance of history. Students, you've got to know this kind of stuff. This is going to change your life. It will change your future. You have to know this history. And so for the first time in my entire life, I was actually interested about the kings and queens of England. I was interested about some of the things that happened earlier on in the 20th century, like the Titanic. I was interested about the, the pioneers heading into the American West. This stuff was electrifying. But why? Because I had seen that truth of history embodied in front of me. I saw what it meant to be passionate about history. I saw him kind of enflesh that truth and live it out. John's saying the same thing to his readers. You want to know what love looks like, just look at Jesus Christ. You'll see flesh on the bones of the truths of loving one another. It's a laying down kind of love. It's an other person's interest kind of love. It's an other person's centered kind of love. It's a self-forgetful kind of love. Now, now, you're sitting there kind of thinking, all right, James, thanks, great. See, love defined. But, yep, okay, God is love. Where on earth can we do that kind of stuff? Because we know how chaotic it is on church on a Sunday morning. We know we walk in here, we're jamming the kids into their groups, we jam in here, and then after the service, we might have a 30, 60-second conversation with someone else, but really, is this the right environment to be loving one another? I mean, how can we lay ourselves down for one another if when we're here, we don't really have a conversation well enough to get to know someone in order to love them properly? Well, how do we do that? Well, there's already a lot that goes on, and it's, it's, it's fantastic to see. Lo loads of you invite one another into your homes for an evening, and you share a meal together. In that, you are communicating love. I know some of you give like there is no tomorrow. And I mean that, literally. Give like there is no tomorrow. You meet other people's needs or, or you communicate your love for one another through a gift, through a card, through a letter, through a hug, through a word of encouragement when you see them. 
I know a lot of you hear that people are in need and you demonstrate the love of Jesus in that way. But there is one environment within BRBC that I think we can best love one another. That's why we have, now this is a plug, you're going to see, that's why we have community groups. That's exactly why community groups exist. Now, I know a lot of people kind of see community groups as a Bible study in a house. Yeah, we often have studies, and that's great. Usually, the studies are off the back of a sermon, and we try to make the questions kind of an application and applying these truths to our lives. But while a community group really is, yes, a study together, there is content. In line with that, and just as important, is the fact that you get face-to-face with other people, and you get to know them in such a way that you are able to love them. It's not the kind of thing we approach and say, what am I going to get out of this tonight? No, 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 no. That's not how community groups work. Community groups is you saying, God loves me, I belong to him, and I share in his nature. Wow. How can I obey this right here and love one another in the room? How can I meet needs? How can I pray and bear others' burdens? How can I demonstrate care for one another? How can I give? How can I encourage? How can I show the love of Jesus more to the people in this room? That's why they exist. We have environments all over the church to be able to love one another. But you see what John is doing? He's saying, love defined. See love defined. That's going to push you. When we're standing there thinking, look, this is really hard. Church is hard. Community groups are hard. Some people don't talk a lot. Some people talk way too much. Some people stay on topic. Some people can't stay on topic. This is hard. Yes. So love one another and see love defined. Okay, we've got a couple more pit stops to make on the way. So let's read verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And when I first read that, I kind of thought, John, that's a bit of a tangent. You've moved away from what you were talking about. Have you, you kind of lost the train of thought. I mean, you were talking about loving one another. God is love. Our nature is, okay, love to find Jesus. But then fear, perfect love, not fearing judgment, and then perfect love casts out fear. What's John talking about? Well, I think within the context of what we just read, it's very, very simple. God loves us, and he's loved us before we loved him. John has emphasized that. It's God's initiating love that has changed our lives. And because of that, we have an opportunity to know God's love. We can abide in it. We can dwell in it. We can stay in God's love. And when we do, what happens? We know that we are accepted. We stand in that assurance. We have that security. And we know because he loves us, he is never going to let us go. And when you know that, what happens? Well, it begins to push fear away. John says, right, you don't need to fear judgment day. You stand in Jesus Christ. You bear his righteousness. You don't need to have your knees knocking in light of God's judgment because you bear 
The righteousness of Jesus Christ right here. So you can have a confidence. You can have an assurance. But he says more broadly, perfect love casts out fear. No, no, we can't be perfect in this life. What does John mean? And he means love reaches its intended goal when fear has been pushed out. Now think about this. Think about this. If we know God's love for us, we know we're accepted, and we know we can stand secure in that. That changes how we go about life. We don't have to fear what other people say about us. We don't have to fear what other people will think about us. We can take that outrageous risk of laying our hearts on the line and radically loving other people because we know God will never let us go. You see that? Connect the dots there. If God loves us, we have a security and an assurance. So we can take that outrageous risk of loving other people who may be thankless, who may say something hurtful, who may not even notice, who may not see the gravity of your sacrifice, but because we know God's love, we are willing to take that risk and the fear has been cast out. That's what I think John is saying. I did a little bit of reading at university through child psychology. I don't know, considered myself to be well-read in the era, but I just find it really interesting to kind of watch as my kids grow as they go through some of the stages. And there's a lot of studies done on attachment and security. And you'll see, when a child has developed a secure attachment with a parent or a carer, they are more willing to take risks in that room where the parent and carer is. So, so if, if there's a strong attachment that child will be more willing to walk across the room and do something new, to meet someone new, or to take that risk and be adventurous. It's very similar to what John is saying right here. God has accepted us. God has called us as his own. We belong to him. And when we know that, when we're secure in that, when we know that he will not let us go, we can take that outrageous risk of walking across the room and loving someone who's hard to love. Taking the risk of, I don't know what they're going to think of me. I don't know what they're going to say about me. But I'm going to do this to demonstrate the love of Jesus to them and forget myself. So here's the third point of motivation John gives us. Experience loves loves power to expel fear. Now let's just rattle through this last point here. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John seems to be saying right here, I'm not messing around. I'm not suggesting. This isn't just an opinion. Look, if you say you love God and you aren't loving to the people around you, well, do you really know God's love? No, this is not a suggestion, John seems to be saying. This is a command. Why is it a command? Because it's who you are. Last point, point four. It's not suggested, it's commanded. Takes us right back to point one. What did John say? We love one another because it's who we are. We love one another because we belong to God. We love one another because we have been born of him. So therefore, it cannot be a suggestion. It's who you are, so it's a must-do. It's a must-grow-in. It's a must-pursue. 
Now, we all know what it feels like to stand there halfway around the path and say, this is really, really hard right now. I can love the easy people, but everyone else, I'm just having a really hard time. It is hard. John says, yeah, okay. Here's a push. Here's an encouragement. Here's an impetus to keep walking that difficult, self-forgetful, self-sacrificing, other person-centered road. Why do we love one another? Why do you love one another? Why, 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 do, why should I love anyone? Because God is love. And I belong to him. Why should you sacrifice for the good of other people in this room? Because God is love. And you belong to him. Why should you give of your money, your time, and have people invade your space? Because God is love. And you belong to him. Why would you take that radical, adventurous risk of loving others? Because God is love and you belong to him. Why should we love one another? Because God is love and we belong to him. Let's pray and then we'll sing our last song together. Well, we're thankful for uh, John's words to us. Uh, They're hard to hear. Man, Lord, we really feel the finger uh, pointing at us. It's hard. It is really hard to do this comprehensively. But Lord, we thank you that by your spirit you have given motivation, impetus, encouragement, strength through the words of John to be the kind of people who lay ourselves down self-sacrificially, self-forgetfully to love one another. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.